Hello everyone and welcome to Clinical Conversations. I'm Dr. Jonathan Bargett and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. David Breen. He is an honorary consultant neurologist working in the University of Edinburgh and he specialises in the assessment and treatment of people with movement disorders. And today in this podcast we are going to be talking about Parkinson's disease and related moving disorders. Welcome Dr. Breen. Thanks Johnny, thanks for the invite, nice to speak to you. You do. And um, I guess without any delay, really, why are we talking about Parkinson's disease and movement disorders? Well, I guess most people listening to this podcast will be medics of some description, often working in acute medical wards. And I think that was one of the things you wanted to try and address. And I think we're talking about it, I suppose, because Parkinson's is very common. And so whilst not everyone needs to be an expert, I think it's obviously important to know a bit about the disease and how it affects people because these people and these patients will be coming into acute medical wards, hopefully not because of their Parkinson's directly, something's probably gone a bit wrong if that happens, but because of either complications of their condition or other health conditions. And so, you know, individuals with Parkinson's tend to be a bit older, often with comorbidities. So obviously, uh, it's quite common to see individuals with Parkinson's in hospital. So just so that the listeners know what we're talking about, in, in simple terms, what is Parkinsonism? So, so Parkinsonism is a term that we give to basically a combination of clinical signs when we examine patients. So, so the hallmark sign of Parkinsonism is, a, is bradykinesia, which is a, a particular type of slowness of movement, often detected when we're examining repetitive limb movements or just watching someone walk. And in Parkinsonism, the bradykinesia is often found in combination with uh, other features like rigidity, limb rigidity, or, or rest tremor. So that is Parkinsonism, which, if you like, is, a, is an umbrella description term under which there's, you know, obviously a bunch of different causes, the most common of which is probably Parkinson's disease, which is, I guess, what we're talking about today. But it's not the only cause of Parkinsonism. And so it's good to be aware of some of the other causes. I mean, I guess amongst those would be drug-induced Parkinsonism, particularly certain antipsychotic medications, so dopamine-blocking antipsychotic medications. Also worth considering is some of the atypical Parkinsonian disorders. Um, so they, they are progressive supranuclear palsy, PSP, multiple system atrophy, MSA, and corticobasal syndrome. And they can mimic Parkinson's in their earlier stages, particularly and then there's some other causes like vascular Parkinsonism that probably is overdiagnosed actually, but can mimic Parkinson's and some other rarer things like normal pressure hydrocephalus and, and other things. Um, so detecting Parkinsonism is the first step and then having a bit of an open mind to distinguish Parkinson's disease from the other forms. It's probably something that I do frequently in clinic and maybe medics have less experience of, but it's good to keep an open mind and, and think about those things. That's a really good overview of what we're going to get talking about today. I guess just so that the listeners can get sort of a flavour of how you diagnose Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. could you talk about what that pathway is in, in your clinic and, and how you diagnose Parkinson's disease before we start talking about the problems that patients with Parkinson's disease might experience if they come into the AMU for yeah. any other unrelated reason? And sure. I was thinking about scanning and any other diagnostic criteria that you use. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, patients are generally diagnosed in specialist clinics, um, either in neurology or geriatrics, 
although there's often a clinical suspicion of Parkinson's when someone presents obviously first to the GP or sometimes picked up during other hospital admissions. So I think first and foremost, it's important just to, to kind of recognize, I mean, Parkinson's disease is a clinical diagnosis first and foremost. There are occasions when imaging can be helpful or supportive. It can be helpful in some situations where you think someone has Parkinsonism, but there are some indicators that they may have a, you know, that there may not be Parkinson's disease. And actually you're looking from some, looking for some radiological signs of one of these other disorders. Actually an MRI scan, structural MRI scan and Parkinson's disease should look pretty normal. So imaging isn't necessarily always needed in Parkinson's disease, although it is done in, in some individuals. Another type of scan that you sometimes see be ordered in people with Parkinsonism is a DAT scan, a dopamine transporter scan, which is a nuclear medicine scan looking for evidence of, I guess, dopamine deficiency in the brain, you could say. I think the important thing to say about that one is that that's abnormal in Parkinson's disease, but it's also abnormal in the atypical Parkinsonian syndromes. So it doesn't differentiate between them. It is a clinical diagnosis. Um, and so it is important to be aware of the clinical clues that point to these other diagnoses, even though they are quite a bit rarer. That's generally how people come to be diagnosed. It's usually in a specialist neurology, geriatrics or movement disorders clinic having been referred by their GP, I would say. That's really helpful. And I guess one of the things that I'd like to confirm with you is that patients who have Parkinson's disease can continue with life. It's a matter of having the diagnosis recognised and then they either start treatment or we watch and wait. Would that be fair to say? I think it'd be completely fair to say. I mean, I see a really, I mean, I'm biased because I see, I guess, the slightly younger end of Parkinson's, but Parkinson's affects people of a variety of ages, even though it is an age-related disorder. There are a number of good symptomatic medications that can address some of the symptoms of the disease, particularly some of the movement symptoms they can be very good. The problem is that there's no getting around the fact that Parkinson's is a progressive brain disorder. It does get worse over the years. That varies hugely from person to person, and people's response to medication varies person to person. And so uh, it is the case that Parkinson's will change over the years and symptoms will progress. And, and as that happens, you do need to kind of adjust and treat differently with different medications and different therapies. And so we do need medicines that actually deal with the underlying disease itself, not just the symptoms, but there are a lot of good medications. And what I generally say to people at the time of diagnosis is, you know, don't necessarily look at everyone else with Parkinson's and expect that that's the trajectory that your condition will take. Everyone is hugely different. So in one person, tremor may, you know, predominate. In someone else, kind of walking slowness or limb stiffness could predominate. In other people, the, the movement symptoms are less of the issue. It's actually non-motor symptoms that can be the biggest issue. So there's huge variability, but, but absolutely, it's a condition that is treatable. It's just not a condition that's curable. Um, and I think getting to know some with Parkinson's and what matters to them and what treatments they need I think it's actually one of the privileges of, of looking after people with Parkinson's or, or helping them look after their own disease, getting to know them and what matters to them and how best to treat their disease, I think, is the key. That's a really useful insight into how you work, Dr. Breen. And I guess from the perspective of the content of this podcast, that's a really good introduction to talking about managing patients with Parkinson's disease in the mm -hmm. AMU. And that's really what I want to get into now. 
Can you advise the medical unit, junior doctors, the consultants, the registrars, what kind of things can we do to improve the care of our patients coming in with a medical problem that have Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so good question. I mean, th- th- there's plenty of things that can be done to improve care. I think one thing that strikes me sometimes is don't feel the need to reinvent the wheel, but by which I mean, I think the temptation when someone comes in with an acute medical problem and someone's Parkinson's symptoms are worse is to do something to their Parkinson's medications to make them better. But I mean, the fact is that if someone's tremor is worse in the context of infection or something else, that doesn't necessarily reflect kind of worsening of their underlying disease. In fact, almost certainly it doesn't. It's just you know, exacerbation of symptoms due to the acute medical problem. And actually giving someone time and treating the underlying cause of the reason they're in hospital, I think is usually the first step, uh, rather than kind of pushing to, to change the Parkinson's medications. I, I guess just a couple of other things to mention would be, I think giving people their Parkinson's medications on time is a key thing. We, we constantly, and the Parkinson's nurses constantly try to help educate wards around the hospital. We can come on to talk about it maybe, but People with Parkinson's are often on dopamine replacement medications that they need to take on time. And those times may differ from the usual medication times, and that can be a bit of a tension on wards. And so finding ways around that, whether it be self-administration or or something else, sometimes is important. I guess thinking about the timing of physiotherapy or the timing of uh, investigations and making sure people don't miss medication doses is important recognizing that people have had the condition a long time and so they are kind of experts in their own disease so asking them what they think I think is important Uh, and actually involving other people you know that that know about Parkinson's if you're not sure Um, so Parkinson's nurses pharmacists the patient's neurologist I guess they'd be some general kind of tips or advice I would say. That's really helpful and Certainly in my experience, being able to access or get advice from the Parkinson's nurse specialists who are our health board system has been very straightforward and very, very helpful. And I guess what I'd like to get an insight from yourself would be what kind of question would you be consulted for in the context of a patient being admitted to the hospital regarding their Parkinson's disease? Specifically, are there any examples of complications or any problems with the the pharmacy that you've alluded to that might need addressed during the time as an inpatient? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of times that someone that that I'll personally be consulted. To be honest, it's usually the Parkinson's nurses that will let me know that someone was in with some problem or another. Uh, And often the advice they give is great. And often the wards are doing all the right stuff anyway. And in terms of someone's Parkinson's treatment, as I say, that, that acute admission isn't necessarily the time to be you know, adjusting someone's actual Parkinson's therapy. It's just alerting me to the fact that this has happened and it's something I might need to pick up when I see someone soon, or maybe I need to expedite their clinic. I think the nurses often get calls about individuals in whom, as I said, there is worsening of their Parkinson's symptoms during a hospital admission. I think they probably get calls about people who can't take their Parkinson's medications for one reason or another. So if someone's nil by mouth, for example, that, that that's quite a common reason for referral or just when someone's got a, a new problem in relation to the Parkinson's maybe they're falling maybe they have a delirium maybe they're hallucinating or, or something of that nature so it's, it's quite varied I would say and, that, and that's great I think that's what that's what we are here for and particularly what the Parkinson's nurses are brilliant at deal, dealing with. That's great and um, I guess just so that we're really being clear about what we're talking about could you just tell the listeners what is the therapy that we're giving them I know we're giving them 
replacement of their dopamine, but of course there are different preparations and different types of medications that can be given. What are we treating and what are we targeting? Well, that'll change, you know, depending on the patient, obviously. I mean, probably what we'll talk about mainly is, is treatments designed to address the movement symptoms of their Parkinson's. So, do, as you say, dopamine replacement medications. Obviously, Parkinson's isn't just about movement, and it's probably beyond the scope of our chat today, Johnny. But, you know, things like, you know, other non-movement symptoms are very common in Parkinson's, you know, whether it be mood or sleep or pain or autonomic dysfunction. But in terms of the the kind of, treatment of movement symptoms with dopamine pills. Some individuals will be on no medication if they've just been diagnosed recently, so that's possible. But most people will be taking uh, levodopa, which is a precursor of dopamine uh, given in tablet form, usually three times a day or sometimes more, uh, and it's absorbed in the small intestine and gets into the bloodstream and gets to the brain. And so the, the, the drugs that people will be familiar with will be the generics, so that's cocaraldopa and cobenaldopa. And, and the kind of pharma trade names, which are Cinemet and Madapar. And they have kind of, yeah, funny doses, and sometimes that can cause confusion. But levodopa has been around for decades. It remains probably the best symptomatic drug we have. Some people will be on alternative ways of stimulating their dopamine system. So uh, some individuals may be on dopamine agonists. A small number instead of levodopa, particularly individuals who are younger, but often as well as levodopa. And so the, the drugs to look out for in terms of dopamine agonists are rapinerol, pramapexol, and retigotine patches. And then there's some other drugs that are, are kind of given alongside levodopa to maximize its benefit, I would say. So entacapone, which is a Compton inhibitor, selegiline, which is an MEOB inhibitor, and amantadine, which is an old-style drug usually used to treat dyskinesias. So that's probably the main, I would say, symptomatic kind of list of medications we give. There's obviously patients on more what we might call advanced Parkinson's therapies, like apomorphine pumps or duodopa pumps into the gut or even deep brain stimulation. But that's probably, you know, if, if people are coming in with those, I think you should be calling someone who knows about those, you know, as a matter of course, really. So that's a really good summary of, of the medicines that are used in Parkinson's disease. And I was just wondering if you could uh, highlight to our listeners about what therapies our patients with Parkinson's should avoid um, in the community and in their time if they're admitted to hospital. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great question, particularly for this audience, for when patients are admitted acutely. I would say there's two main classes of medicine that I think need to be used with caution or ideally really not used at all in people um, presenting acutely with Parkinson's. The first is antipsychotic drugs, particularly uh, the typical antipsychotics, so drugs like clopromazine and even atypicals like risperidone and olanzapine. They are dopamine-blocking drugs, and so they can aggravate patients' you know, motor symptoms alongside the other side effects that these drugs cause. And, and, and people sometimes do try to reach for them when patients are admitted with delirium due to infection, for example. And I think really they are to be avoided and can cause problems. I think the second uh, class of drugs people need to be aware of that can cause issues are certain antiemetics. Metoclopramide is the one that we, we most commonly um, have issues with for the same reason that these are dopamine blocking drugs. So metoclopramide should be avoided as an antiemetic. Protoperazine, which we don't really use that much anyway, should also be avoided. But it's fine to give cyclozine and danzatron. So, so basically find an alternative antiemetic than metoclopramide. And I, I think beyond that, there are some weird and wacky 
antidepressants and antihypertensive drugs that should be used with some caution in people with Parkinson's, but they really are the drugs of specialist clinics out with the, the kind of main hospital and probably isn't necessary to go into a huge amount of detail. They're really prescribed anyway. I guess the last thing to say, and it is theoretical, and pharmacists will often ask about it, in patients on MEOB inhibitors like selegiline and rosagiline, there's a theoretical risk of serotonin syndrome if um, those drugs are given alongside certain antidepressants. Now, in reality, I think that is a theoretical risk as long as you're giving the selegiline and rosagiline at the licensed and prescribed doses. I think those kind of cases of serotonin syndrome are extremely rare. And I've never seen a case, and most of my colleagues wouldn't have either. And if you need to, then sometimes we do give kind of both together. But just be aware that the pharmacist may alert you to it, and, and you may want to avoid the combination of, of MEOB inhibitors along with certain serotonin-acting antidepressants, if you can, or at least without specialist input. That's really helpful. And I guess, presumably, in, in those situations, these patients may need closer monitoring of their symptoms and looking out for that interaction of serotonin syndrome. Yeah, I think that, I think that's right. Certainly, if, if I'm, you know, giving a combination of those two drugs in the community, you know, certainly I would counsel patients on that possible, probably theoretical risk and, and what to be aware of. I'd also usually give the Parkinson's nurses a heads up just to be aware that if they did get a call from that patient, you know, to, to be aware that, that that is a potential interaction. But as I say, in reality, Having used these drugs for you know for many years and, and often used them in combination, I haven't I haven't seen that 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 issue myself in the past. That's really useful, and I think it's really nice just to summarise the medicines to avoid. And really, the, the purpose of this is to ensure that our patients are a reduction in their symptoms and to improve their quality of life for as, as yeah. long as possible. Absolutely, um, I would uh, I would I would echo that. And I guess I'd like to get into some cases now, if that's okay with you, Dr. Breen. Sure. I've certainly encountered patients with Parkinson's disease during my time and my training, and I would like to really just pick a couple of cases that will probably be generic to other trainees and certainly yourself. One of the patients that we've already kind of alluded to was about someone who may have to be nil by mouth, and perhaps in the context of an acute abdomen or a surgical procedure or a surgical emergency. And the advice that I've always I've had was to always, if possible, to give the enteral uh, medication and that would be the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst you mentioned reticotine is available, often a call that the medical registrar might get certainly would be to consult on an appropriate alternative and what kind of dosing. What, what's mm-hmm. your experience in that and, and what would your advice be for our, our trainees and how to approach that situation? Yeah, so I think that's a perfect case to discuss, actually, for this conversation, because I think it is commonly encountered. So my answer to that would be, um, the advice you're given was, was, was reasonable, I would say. I mean, the first thing to say is that most trusts have policies and protocols on this. Uh, and certainly where I work in Edinburgh, we have a, a, a kind of protocol drawn up for this kind of situation. So wherever you work, it's, it's good to know what your local policy is. And, and as I say, to involve the PD nurses and the neurology registrars in the conversation if you're not sure. I think the, the key concept is patients with Parkinson's on dopamine medications need to continue their dopamine medications in some form. So that's the kind of overarching, you know, that needs to happen because there's risks if they don't. And, and, and the main risk is that they get, you know, stiff and can't move and they can't swallow and they might aspirate. And there's rare, you know, complications like neuroleptic malignant syndrome and, 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 and just longer admissions. So people need to continue on their medicines. 
So if people are are nil by truly nil by mouth and can't uh, swallow, I guess the two main options are one delivering medications via an NG tube. Now, actually, that still is problematic if people are just vomiting all the time because they're probably still not going to absorb the drug from their small intestine. But that is one option, is to give the medications via an NG. Now, in the form of levodopa, that would involve giving the levodopa as a dispersible preparation. And so speaking to your pharmacist about the switchover, I think, would be key there. Dopamine agonists, they can be crushed and given via an NG, Um, but they're not licensed to be used in that way. And actually, I think a lot of hospital protocols will now say that if that's needing to be done, actually, you should be considering switching to a non-oral dopamine agonist, i.e. the reticotine patch. So I think that's the first option, you know, giving levodopa via the NG. And the second option is to switch to a reticotine patch. We've mentioned this drug a few times. It's quite useful in this scenario. So reticotine, a patch, comes in two, four, six, eight milligram strengths. Uh, It stays on for 24 hours. You rotate the site. It's a dopamine agonist, and it can be used as this short-term treatment in someone who's who's nil by mouth. You can switch over either by using kind of uh, switchover tables that might be in your trust policy, or there's calculators that you can use for this purpose. But actually, if you're not sure, you can ask the PD nurses, but most trusts have these kind of switchover calculators. Now, it's not equivalent to levodopa. Dopamine agonists in susceptible individuals, particularly older people who are cognitively frailer, you know, can worsen their cognition, can cause hallucinations, can make people more sleepy. One has to be a little bit cautious, but I think it's a useful short-term treatment in people who can't take levodopa. So, yeah, that's a lot of information. So, so, so just, you know, in summary, make sure they get some medication. The options are giving it via NG or switching to predominantly a reticotine patch and seek help if you're not sure. And, and finally, I mean, this, you know, people with Parkinson's, it, it does seem likely that they are more at risk of GI complications than the general population. And actually, in that circumstance, probably people with Parkinson's are more at risk of delirium as well during that admission. So there's, there's lots to be aware of, not least trying to work out whether their chronic constipation was being adequately dealt with at the time of discharge to prevent readmissions. So, so there's some of the things I would, I would think about in this situation. That's really insightful. And it does actually lead me on to the next question that I was going to ask Dr. Breen about delirium, constipation, side effects from the Parkinson's disease medications and the disease process itself. And how that might impact on an interconcurrent illness, such as infection, as we've already talked about. And I guess that's really increasing the risk of falls in some patients, more frail patients or patients who already have a movement disorder, as as we're talking about. What's your your kind of approach to the patient that may be having increased falls in the context of of that and also their, their autonomic dysfunction, which we've alluded to? Okie doke. So, I mean, certainly an acute medical problem can make Parkinson's symptoms worse. There are some people who come in and their drug-induced dyskinesia is a lot worse. And so trying to find the right balance can be a challenge. Um, we've talked about, you know, acute medical problems being a risk factor for delirium in Parkinson's and, and, and people developing falls. So, as I say, I think the key is just supporting someone and minimising the risk as much as possible and treating what's there to be treated and and supporting individuals through that acute admission. I think in some people, falls is is actually a a kind of feature of an atypical Parkinsonian syndrome. 
I think that's less common than just worsening of balance in the context of Parkinson's disease, but it's something that should be borne in mind. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question as such, but um, certainly aspects of Parkinson's and drug-induced side effects can be made worse by acute medical problems. Yeah, and I think we, we talked about progressive supranuclear palsy. We, we touched on the other syndromes that are associated with that. Mm-hmm. And I guess for our listeners, it, it's useful reminder or differential for someone coming in with, with a movement disorder in the falls. That's something just useful to touch on. In terms of the AMU and, and the access to the PD specialist, would you have any other advice for our, our junior doctors who are working in that environment and what you can advise them to do, specifically things to focus on in history and examination when seeing these patients? Uh, in terms of the diagnosis of their condition, you mean, Johnny, or, or something else? In terms of general measures and things that we can do to make sure that, as you say, their disease is being managed, but also improving the routine care that they would be getting on the ward in terms of medication timing and looking out for those complications such as dyskinesias, as you say. I see. If you're worried about a particular Parkinson's symptom, for example, getting a feel from the patient and possibly their partner or carer or whatever, whether that's a new problem and, and getting a feel for the tempo of that, I think we'll, we'll give you an idea whether that is you know, related to the concurrent medical issue they have or part and parcel of their disease. So I think listening to the patient and the people around them is usually a good thing to do. I think keeping the people that already know the patient, so the patient's consultant or the Parkinson's nurses updated if nothing else, by copying them into the discharge letter, I think is always a good thing to do because it alerts us to the fact that they've been in and, and sometimes it causes us to have to kind of rethink certain things in terms of their care. And I guess we've talked a lot about We've talked a bit about some of the other general concepts about getting the medications on time and, and just asking for help if you're not sure. So yeah, that's probably what I would say to that. That's really useful. And I just would like to touch on what, what you mentioned about the features of Parkinson's disease that are beyond the movement disorder itself, thinking about cognition, specifically any risk of depression or any, any slowing in their, their thought. Is there anything that you would find particularly useful in the discharge summary for, for junior doctors who are, or registrars who are writing letters when you're um, wanting to see them in clinic again, specifically any mention of mood or, or cognition state at that moment, be it through any scoring system more appropriate tests yeah no i think i think just common sense things really i mean i guess we're, we're most interested in the things that the patient is you know bothered by and so i think if the patient is you know worried about some new symptom and they're worried that that may be caused by their parkinson's that, that that's good to know about because even if it isn't due to parkinson's i think it's important to address that in other ways or reassure someone that no that's not part of your parkinson's we expect that to get better by doing you know x y or z and so I think it, 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 you know, it depends to some extent in terms of how much information you put in a kind of a discharge letter and, and, and who you're referring to, whatever. It depends if they're known to someone else or not. You know, if you're making a fresh referral, it is good to make a, you know, a good effort at trying to understand the tempo of their symptoms, trying to understand how it affects their life in terms of work or hobbies or eating or, or, or mobility or whatever that may be. And also just giving a summary about the kind of Parkinsonian symptoms that we talked about, but obviously the non-motor issues that may be relevant. And that gives you a starting point that the specialist can then take forward. Because even actually in terms of the referrals that we get, 
red flags may be going up when you hear certain things in the referral history that may indicate that this may not be straightforward Parkinson's disease, it might be something else. And so that's a great starting point as a specialist when you see people with Parkinsonism or, or other movement disorders. That's a really good overview of the symptoms and the aspects of care that general medical doctors and trainees can learn about and encounter whenever they're looking after patients with Parkinson's disease. In terms of just before we wrap up, what would you what would you say would be your 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 top tips then for our listeners in terms of looking after patients with Parkinson's disease or a suspected Parkinsonism? So I think if you meet someone with Parkinson's, listen to the patient. They normally know about their disease. Listen to their partners or carers because they live with this day in day out you've just met them don't kind of steamroller them into a management change that they don't think is right or they don't understand so i think that's probably the first and foremost important uh, don't be afraid to ask for advice that's what um, we're here for that's what the parkinson's nurses are here for that's what neurologists and, uh, and geriatricians are here for to look after normally these patients I think kind of the medications on time is a massive one. I don't want to hark on about this one, but it is important. It still happens that people sit for a day or two and, you know, on the Cardex, there's a drug not available number beside the prescription of a certain you know, drug. Um, so I think it's important that people get their medications on time and try and source those medications. And yeah, ask for help if you're not sure. That's great and a really comprehensive useful and uh, relevant uh, summary of, of what our junior colleagues and medical trainees can, can learn about Parkinson's disease or brain. I'd like to say thank you. Thanks for your time. And um, I've really enjoyed learning more about your specialty. Great. So it's my pleasure. All the best. Grant. And for our listeners, if you'd like to give feedback to Dr. Breen and if you've got any questions, you can direct that to our evening medical update question boxes for this episode. And you can leave feedback through our social media, such as Twitter and Instagram. Once again, Dr. Breen, thank you very much. Thanks, man.